It is truly a blessing to be here today. Uh, very thankful for the opportunity that we have to come together as brothers and sisters to praise our Father in heaven, to remember the, the death of our Savior, as we will hear uh, later on in the service, and to feed upon his word. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew 7, if they aren't already open there. Uh, if there's anything of value that you're going to, to hear today, it's going to come from God's word. That's where the power is. Um, that's where the authority is. Here in Matthew 7, uh, the passage that uh, Brad just read for us is a passage that we talked about briefly in our Bible class maybe two weeks ago. And we, we talked about this idea of bearing fruit and what it means to bear fruit. Uh, but specifically here, we're talking about judging fruit. As one brother said, being a fruit inspector. And this passage is, is challenging to me to, to think about how exactly we should apply this on a practical level. Certainly, this is something that all of us need to do, that all of us need to be aware of. But how exactly do we judge fruit. The Bible has quite a bit to say about false teaching. Uh, if you were to go throughout the, the books of the New Testament, there, there's hardly a book that doesn't give some type of warning or reference to false teachers, false prophets, false apostles, false Christs, false spirits, or false brethren. Uh, and so, uh, while we might at times be hesitant to label something as false teaching or, or identify a person as a false teacher because we don't want to come across as judgmental or arrogant or, or dogmatic, uh, if, if this terminology never shows up in our vocabulary as a congregation, then we're really not speaking where the Bible speaks. And so we need to make sure that we take this exhortation seriously, um, that we heed Christ's warning here to take thought to, to the fruit of the, the teachings of the teachers that we see around us uh, that even stand at this pulpit here. And so I hope today by considering this idea, we, we can think on a practical level how this is something that, that we can properly apply. But where we maybe need to start out is by recognizing that false teaching often appears to be good, innocent, and even commendable. You see here in this passage in Matthew 7 and verse 15, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They're not outwardly going to look like wolves. Uh, their intention is not going to be um, readily visible by all. And these are the same people, I think, down in verse 21 through 23, who are the people who are calling Jesus Lord, Lord. And in fact, it says that they are prophesying in his name. They are casting out demons in his name. They're performing many miracles in, their, in his name. They're, they're very active religiously. And they're calling Jesus Lord, Lord. It's interesting uh, throughout the scriptures the times that we see somebody repeating a name. Uh, you see Jesus in Luke 10 saying, Martha, Martha, right? And uh, Luke 13 and verse 34, standing over Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to take you in as a, a hen gathers her, her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. In Luke 22 and verse 31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan 
has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so often, kind of this, this repetition of name is, is an indication of deep emotion or sincerity. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Simon, Simon. Here, these people seem very sincere, right? Lord, Lord. And they're very active in what they claim to be his service. But these are the people that Jesus says are not doing his will. And I think the same people here who ultimately are, are ravenous wolves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 and 14, Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan isn't stupid, brethren. Uh, he has been at this a lot longer than we have. And no false teacher is going to come out with a big sign on his chest with red letters that says false teacher, right? Satan is going to be subtle and crafty. He's going to come as an angel of light, we're told here. And he's not just going to use the, the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hens and the Joel Osteens of the world either. That for us might very readily seem like false teachers. He's going to use teachers that seem very sincere and passionate and have a lot of good, insightful things to say. He's going to use speakers that are engaging and easy to listen to, authors that are inspiring and impactful and, and help you see the world from a different perspective that you've never thought of before. He's going to use movies and videos and music that have good moral messages that even your kids can understand. Satan is going to use things that outwardly seem innocent, even seem commendable, in order to draw us away from the Lord. That's why this exhortation is important. This is why this is something we need to talk about, and that's why this is something that we need to take seriously. It's because it's not something that's always going to be obvious. It's not something that's always going to be on the surface. I think a good illustration of the approach that false teaching may sometimes take is seen in the example of Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 15. If you want to turn your Bibles with me there, 2 Samuel 15, here we see Absalom drawing away the hearts of the people of Israel from David, their king. I think probably in a very similar way to how some false teaching might seek to draw our hearts away from our king, Jesus. Here in 2 Samuel 15, notice Absalom's approach starting in verse 1. It says, now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And when any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me a judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or cause could come to me, and I would give him justice. And when a man came near to prostrate himself before him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. What's Absalom doing here? Here, it sounds pretty good to the people who are coming. Here, uh, Absalom is taking an opportunity to talk to anybody who has some uh, seed of, of malcontent 
or some frustration. And even though this is the time period of David the king, right? This is the king that Israel is going to look back on as, as the, the greatest king that, that they ever had. Absalom is finding ways to sow seeds of malcontent among the people. Here, somebody is coming and they have a problem and they're not heard by the king right away. And he said, well, what, what is your problem? You know, your, your claims are good and right. You, you know, the king should do something about this. And if I were king, I would be so much more attentive to your need. Throw out all the good things that David has been doing as king, right? But even in the rule of King David, there's something to be dissatisfied about. There's something to, to find frustration with. And that is what Absalom is going to pray on. Brother, do you see that ever happening in the Lord's church? There are always going to be things to be dissatisfied about. The church isn't perfect. Our Lord, our King, is perfect. But often, we'll find things to uh, be dissatisfied with. And apostasy often starts with some type of dissatisfaction, maybe even a legitimate dissatisfaction, that something isn't entirely the way that it should be. But what happens is we hear some teacher who's addressing all of the things that have fr been frustrating us, right? All of the issues that we're most passionate about, that, that we think are, are most important, and we get drawn in by that. It doesn't matter what else they're teaching about salvation, about the church, about what God desires for his people to be doing. They have this right, and that's what I've been passionate about. That's my dissatisfaction. And so because they have this right, I'm blind to maybe the other things that are being brought in. We need to beware of Absalom's. Because that is how Satan works. And that doesn't mean that teachers always do that intentionally. I think when we're talking about uh, wolves here in sheep's clothing, I don't think it's always that, that the, the teacher is intentionally trying to, to do damage. I think later on we'll see some examples of some who had maybe sincere intent. But whether or not it's that person's intention, brethren, you, you can be sure it's Satan's intention. And Satan uses people who may be very genuine and sincere in many ways, to draw God's people astray. And so we need to be serious about this exhortation. We need not to, to belittle the danger of, of false doctrine and false teachers. This is something that the Bible has a lot to say about and something that we need to take very seriously. But how then are we going to identify false teaching. If it's going to seem so good, if it's going to seem so great, then, then how are we going to know? Well, here what Jesus tells us is that we are going to know them by their fruits. God's seed always produces the fruit of godly character. And when we talk about fruits, we're primarily talking about character. Uh, remember in Matthew 7, verse 20 and 21, as we go on there in that passage, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And when we talk about doing the will of the Father, we're not just talking about working miracles and, and prophesying and casting out demons, because that's what those people were doing, or at least claimed to be doing. 
we're uh, talking ultimately about bearing the fruits of the Spirit, right? If we want to know what the, the fruit of God's seed looks like, we, we don't have a checklist that you, you need to be doing this and that, but, but if there was a grocery list of, of the fruit that we need, that God's seed is going to produce, certainly it would be Galatians uh, 5, verse 22 and 23. Here we read, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I want you to notice something about this list. It doesn't say the fruit of the Spirit is prophesying and casting out demons and working miracles, right? That's what the people in Matthew 7 were doing. It doesn't even say the fruits of the Spirit are feeding the hungry and ministering to the the sick and comforting the grieving. Here, the fruit of the Spirit is not just what we do, it is who we are. It is our character. There are qualities that we must not just display on certain occasions and at certain times, but qualities that we must continually possess, that must define us as God's people, be part of our identity. And that is what the seed of God's word is intended to produce within us. Not just some good things here, some some spiritual activities there. It's supposed to produce a transformed character within us. That's ultimately the fruit that we're talking about in this context. And I think that's what we see is the intent of God's teaching, of God's instruction, his seed. Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is one of those passages that we talked about that refers to strange doctrines or false teachings. But notice what Paul's instructions are to Timothy here. Starting in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. We're not only going to know false teaching by its fruit, we're also going to know it by its fruitlessness, right? Turning away from these things, they went off into fruitless discussions, these strange doctrines. There in Matthew 7, you use the illustration, you, you don't find grapes on thistles or or, uh, figs on thorn bushes. I think I got those turned around. But here, thistles and and thorn bushes, what what kind of fruit do they wear? They don't bear fruit, right? Uh, And so ultimately, uh, here, straying from these things, these these strange doctrines are going to be fruitless. At least they're going to lack the type of fruit that God intends. Well, what is that fruit? There in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 1, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Brethren, this first and foremost is what the seed of God's word is intended to produce. 
It's intended to produce a transformed character within us. Our hearts, our conscience, with love and purity and faith. This is the type of fruit that we should be looking for, that we should be bearing in our own lives. When we come together to study God's word, uh, when we come together twice a week to, to spend time being nourished by God's word, when we have, have Bible studies in the community, what, what is the goal of all of that? Is it just because we want to, to get really good at Bible trivia? You know, or, or, or is it because we're, we're just some really enthusiastic book club? Is that what it's about? No, we, we come together and we feed upon God's word to transform who we are. To, to make a difference in our hearts that we might reflect God's love, his joy, his peace, his patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We come that we might be more conformed and molded day by day into his character. We need to remember that. And that's what we need to be looking for in our own lives and in the lives of, of anyone who claims to be teaching God's word. First and foremost, you might have heard the phrase before, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? And brother, this is the main thing. This is the foundation that we reflect love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we see that throughout the scriptures in the gospel of Matthew 22, verse 37 and 39. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and prophets. Brother, this is where it has to start. This is the foundation of who we are to be as God's people. And if we get this wrong, it doesn't matter what else we get right. If we get this right, all other things will become right in time, right? This is the foundation. This is where it starts. He says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What he's saying there is not, you do this and you don't have to worry about the law and prophets. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, this is the only way you can truly follow the law and prophets. Everything is founded upon this, that we first and foremost have hearts, souls, inner mans that are fully devoted to the Lord, that are transformed to his character. And we see this with the, the Pharisees and Jesus' uh, rebuke of them in Matthew 23. Verse 25 and 26, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Our hearts, our inner man, our character is where it starts. And everything else needs to be traced back to that. Brethren, Sometimes it's easy for us to simply focus on the outside. It's not, it's not that Jesus is saying, you clean the inside, you don't have to worry about the outside, right? He's saying, first clean the inside so that the outside may become clean also. When, when our hearts are where they need to be, when, when we are keeping first things first, then everything else is going to be what it needs to be, is, is going to become what it needs to be, Right? And so we need to trace everything that we teach, everything that we practice back to this, 
back to hearts that are fully devoted to the Lord. The, the reason that we worship the way that we worship, the reason that, that we function as a congregation the way that we function, the reason that we teach and practice everything that we teach and practice is because of this. Because of hearts that are fully devoted to the Lord. Towards following Him, glorifying Him, being who He wants us to be. Let's keep that at the forefront of our minds as we think about our own fruit, first and foremost, but also as we evaluate the fruit of others' teaching. So, if, if this fruit maybe primarily is godly character, is the, the fruit of the Spirit, how do we apply that to identifying false teachers? How do we evaluate the fruit of others? Let, let me use an example to illustrate the difficulty in this. Aaron and I, when uh, we were still dating, had a study with some Mormon sisters. Uh, they're kind of the, the female equivalent of Mormon elders. But as they were trying to teach us about the Book of Mormon, Galatians 5 was their proof text. Galatians 5, here are the fruits of the Spirit. And when you look at the lives of Mormon people and Mormon families, what do you see? You see joy, you see love, you see peace, you see all of these things. And, and since you see that in our lives, and I see that in the lives of, of my brethren around me, then we know that the Book of Mormon is truly from God. Now, I, I, I don't know how many interactions you've had with Mormons, but many Mormons are very moral, good people in many ways. Is, 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 is that valid? I, I think we can all understand that it's not. But why? And, and let me use an example maybe on the opposite end of the spectrum, which will help us kind of identify the error here. What if I were to say, um, well, I know that homosexuality is right because love is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And this is love. Well, is that right? All of us would say, well, certainly not. The Bible c condemns that type of, of sexual relationship. What, what if I said, well, well, I know that drunkenness is right because drunkenness brings me joy, and joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Well, no, and, and, and we've made this a little more r ridiculous to make a point. And that's that not every definition of what is good and godly is valid. And in fact, our own definition of what is good and godly may be skewed. And so we need to be very careful that we're defining the things, defining things the way that God is ultimately defining things. Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 20. Isaiah said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. When it comes to the, the world, many times the world's definition of what is good and respectable and commendable can, can be the polar opposite of what God says. Right? For the world, lust can be love. And arrogance can be strength. Male can be female. Murder can be health care. If all we're basing our judgment on is a list of virtues, we better be careful that we're stepping back and letting God define exactly what those virtues mean. 
And even for those who claim to be followers of Christ, we better be very sure that we're actually following Christ and not some cheap imitation of Christ that we've created in our own minds. What would Jesus do is only effective if you do, in fact, know what Jesus would do. If you do exact, see what Jesus did, right? And so as we evaluate fruit in our own lives and from teachings around us, we need to get back to what God defines. You know, from the very beginning, the very first temptation, what, what was one of the promises that Satan gave there in Genesis 3? You can be like God. And, and in one sense, that was true. In fact, later on in Genesis 3, God says man has become like us, knowing good and evil. But in every sense that mattered, it was not true, right? To Satan, being like God, being godly, ultimately involved marring the image of God within our souls. Being separated from God. Separated from the garden and his presence. Not all definitions of what is godly are valid. In fact, John chapter 16, verse 2 and 3, Jesus warns, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. How is that possible? How could somebody think that, that killing followers of Christ could be glorifying to God? You know, can you imagine Matthew 7 when uh, th those people come to the Lord uh, saying, but Lord, Lord, didn't we murder Christians in your name? <laughs> how ridiculous. And yet, how do we get there? Notice what he says in verse 3. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. What's the key? Knowing God. Knowing how he defines love, how he defines joy and peace and faithfulness and goodness and kindness. If we want to identify false teaching, we need to ultimately become familiar with God's seed. And, and even more than that, become familiar with the sower himself. We need to come to understand God as he truly is. Understand his character, not as we define it or as, as we uh, vision it in our own minds, but as he has communicated it to us within his word. The question is not, do I think this is love? Or do I think this is joy? Or do I think it's kindness or goodness? But what does God define as love? What does God define as goodness? You, you know the statement in 1 John 4, God is love. Have you ever thought that maybe that tells us more about the definition of love than it tells us about the definition of God? It's, the, the point is not, do you want to know what God is? Well, look at your conception of love. The point is, you want to know what love is? Look at God. And he goes on to talk about that in 1 John 4. That love is what God has done through Jesus Christ. We need to let God define those things for us. And that means listening to him. So how do we know if something is really the right kind of fruit? We let God tell us. We genuinely get to know the seed of his word, not coming to it with our own preconceptions of who God is and what he wants, but genuinely getting to know him as he truly is, as he's communicated himself to us. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1. We have this warning. It says, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Step one, listen. Listen carefully. Listen attentively. Listen diligently. Brother, too much is done in the name of the Lord that has little resemblance to what God truly desires from his people. And yet it's very easy for us to think that, that because I'm being passionate and zealous and sincere that it must be from God. The only way that we can know that something is truly from the Lord is if he tells us that it's from him. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Kings chapter 13. 1 Kings chapter 13. This is a, a little bit of a longer reading, but I think it is a, an example that will be very helpful to us as we think about these things. I almost thought about having Brad read this scripture instead of Matthew 7. But we're going we're to read this lengthy passage together. 1 Kings 13, starting in verse 11, we'll read through verse 25. And here in the context, you have a young prophet who has just prophesied against the altar that Jeroboam uh, erected in Bethel uh, and has, has condemned the, the false worship that he is giving there. And now in verse 11, we read of 1 Kings 13. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken to the king. These also they related to their father. Their father said to them, which way did he go? Now his sons had seen the way which the man of God who came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his son, saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him and he rode away on it. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. And he said to him, are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. For a command came to me by the word of the Lord, you shall eat no bread nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. He said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord saying, bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it came about as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the command of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but have returned and eaten bread and drunk water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread and drink no water. Your body shall not come to the grave of your father's. It came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled the donkey for him for the prophet whom he had brought back. Now when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown on the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. What, what was the problem here? What was the old prophet a wolf in sheep's clothing? I don't think he intended to be. All indications are that, that his intent here 
what was good. Here is, is a man of God that has just done brave and good things in, in the presence of the king. And I, I want to spend time with him. In fact, I want to be hospitable towards him. And I want to welcome him, him into my home. You know, hospitality is a fruit of the Spirit, right? Or not a fruit of the Spirit, but it is certainly a fruit of godly character. Uh, you know, fellowship with other people of God is a good thing, right? And here to this young prophet, as he comes and there's this man who is a fellow prophet, and he says an angel appeared to him, you can understand why he might have thought, well, certainly this is a good thing, spending time with this godly man. What was the problem? That's not what God said. And we might look at that and we think, well, well you know, that, that's kind of harsh. Here he, he gets killed by a lion. Uh, it's very clear that this is from the Lord because the lion's just sitting there next to him, not, not even touching the body. And yet, brethren, that's what we see time and time again throughout the scriptures. It's not just here. You think about Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. You think about the, the man stoned for picking up sticks in number fi- Numbers 15, about Moses being kept out of the promised land uh, in the situation where, where he struck the rock in Numbers 20. You think about Saul and the destruction of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, about Uzzah and the ox cart in 2 Samuel 6. We see this concept again and again and again that we need to listen and we need to listen well. And when God says something, it doesn't matter how trivial we may think it is. If God said it, that is what we are going to do. And you might say, well, I, I understand what you're saying, Grady, and, and that's right. Uh, but, you know, I, let's be careful that we don't paint God out to be too pharisaical. The Pharisees had a lot of problems. But being too obedient was not one of them. God is serious about obedience, and we need to be as well. There is no standard or measure for evaluating fruit that can replace the word of God itself. God's autobiography, the self-revelation of his character. If we want to know if a fruit is truly from him, let's go back to the seed. Let's go back to the character of God himself. And we referenced this passage in our study earlier this morning, but in Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, we're told, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight and these things. It's not about what we find commendable. It's not about what we think is good, what we think is right. It's about knowing God, knowing what God says is good, what God says is right, what things he delights in and finds pleasure in. Brethren, we need to be careful as well that we aren't serving half a God that we're not serving a one-dimensional God. Notice he says, loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. I think it, it is a danger for us sometimes that we take one aspect of God. God is love, 
and we take our definition of love and, and we let that be the, the standard that trumps all else and filters everything else that the scripture has to say just through that. God is not just one thing. God is many things. God is a multifaceted God, has many different aspects to his character. And we need to be careful that, that we're not just taking the ones that we like and leaving the others. God is loving, but he is also righteous. God is just, but he is also merciful. God is compassionate, but he is holy. He is gracious. But brethren, he's also jealous and wrathful. We need to serve a full God. We need to serve God as he truly is. Do you want to know if a teaching is from God? Get to know him as he truly is. In every aspect, from every angle, plumb the depths of God's character within the scriptures. And let that be the standard by which we evaluate all fruit. John 7, 17. Jesus says, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. This is something that, that we can do. But it takes hearts that are fully devoted to God's will. Not what I think his will is or what I'd like his will to be, but what he has told me it is within the scriptures. Brother, we need to get serious, not about spending time in God's word so we can be really good at, at Bible trivia, but so that we can come to know God. We can spend time in his autobiography. We can get to see him as he truly is. So that as we, from day to day, have to make discernment about teaching, about practices, that in all things we might be pleasing to the God who created us. What about you today? What kind of fruit are you bearing in your life? Have, have you kept the main thing the main thing? Is your full heart devoted to the Lord? Do you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength? If you do, then you're going to be serious about obedience. You're going to be serious, uh, not from a, a pharisaical mindset of, of, of you know, doing all these things so that we look good to other people, but, but doing all of these things so that we bring glory to God, so that we're pleasing in his sight. If you recognize today that there's some area of your life that is not in line with what God has revealed of himself and his will within the scriptures, don't leave here without making that right. And if we in any way can help you in making a change, that's why we're here. That's what we want to do. Um, we're about to, to sing a song, and if anyone here has some need that they need to make known to the brethren, need to ask for, for prayers or help as they seek to make a change, if you need to commit your life to the Lord for the first time, by God's grace, you can bury your old man of sin in the waters of baptism. You can be raised to walk in newness of life. Praise God that we have such an opportunity. If you haven't done that, won't you take that opportunity today? If you have any need that you need to make known, we ask that you'll come to the aisle as we sing together.